The views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent, including Olas Media. Olas Media. You know, if we have, let's say we have a, a rape that happens today, a forcible rape of a child. We have that child or that victim go through a sexual assault examination. It's probably one of the most invasive, personally intrusive types of things we can expect somebody to go through. And that's because we have to collect the evidence. My view is, listen, you know, that rape happened today and they've developed a DNA profile, but they can't match it to anybody in the felon database. We should avail ourselves every single time of that tool if we're not able to solve it through traditional means. This is a special simulcast presentation of Inside the Crime Files with Anne-Marie Schubert. On this simulcast episode of Inside the Crime Files, Anne-Marie Schubert appeared on the Nation State of Play podcast with Brian Miller. We'll join the interview with them as well as Brett Williams of Verigen, a California genetics firm that is taking forensic investigations further with next generation sequencing solutions. All right. Well, Brett and Amory, thank you both so much for being on the show today. I'm really excited to talk about this topic with the two of you. Thanks for having us. Appreciate it. You know, part of the reason I'm excited to have you here is we spent a lot of time on the show talking about the intersection of tech and public policy. And I can't think of a better example than Verigen and what you're doing in the law enforcement space, but also in broader context as well that I want to get into. And now that Amory is out of office, we're hoping we can get her to tell us some of the war stories about some amazing cases that she's worked on over the years um, using this technology specifically. So uh, we, we don't uh, we don't often have two guests on, but really excited to have the both of you on because I think it's a great, great way to talk about this from multiple perspectives. So um, before we dig into how it's used, Brett, could you give us a little bit of overview of the, the company and at a high level what you focus on? Yes, yeah, certainly, Brian. So probably give you a little bit of history of the company. Verigen started out life as the forensic business uh, of Illumina. And in August of 2017, it was spun out by Illumina. So we're a standalone company separate from Illumina. We're not controlled by Illumina. We're our own, our own company. And <clears throat> since then, we've been building out really our focused on our mission and building out our ability to to execute on that, which is we're a biometric-based human ID company. The biometric, the ultimate biometric being DNA. That's unique to every one of us. At our core, we're a um, you know forensic focus and we're using next-generation sequencing from Illumina. We have exclusive rights to their technology for forensics. And just to put that in context for everyone, Illumina, 90% of the human genome sequenced in the world today are performed on an Illumina platform. It is the gold standard from a sequencing uh, platform perspective. We then leverage that technology to, um, to allow us to identify people. It's not about generating, can I generate an STR profile or can I generate a SNP profile? This is about saying, who does that profile belong to? And we do that. From a technology perspective, we generate the data from the next-gen sequencing platform we use from Illumina, but we then combine that with our GEDmatch database. And that's how we help law enforcement here is by allowing um, access to the database combined with our technology, we can generate IDs for intractable cases. 
uh, in the out in the law enforcement um, sphere at the moment. Okay, so and I just want to get the multiple applications out mm. and then unpack these mm. a little bit. So, so part of it is these cold cases mm-hmm. in, in the law enforcement space. Um, there's also a role, as I understand it, that has been used successfully for exonerating the wrongly convicted. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not just a cold case technology. It can be. It's been used for resolving cold cases. And Marie's, um, you know, we'll talk more about that. But it also is used for unidentified human remains. It's also been used for um, exonerations. But one of the other techno- the other uses where you, uh, particularly ex-US is in conflict zones, identifying remains um, <clears throat> from conflict zone work is, is where we've got projects going now in Greece, Spain, uh, uh, the Korean and, and look in also t- discussions with the Vietnamese from the Vietnam War as well. It's just, it's, it's surprising. There's 50, it, like, for example, in Spain, there are 55,000 unidentified remains still. Uh, in Greece, it's from World War II where they have, and people are wanting to start to put a, an ID to these remains. And really, you can't do that any other way other than using the next-gen sequencing platform to do that. And so we're, we, it's a very versatile, but it's also, as we said, it's 21st century technology being applied to the, to the law enforcement sphere here. So how far back historically, theoretically, could this technology be used to identify human remains? So it, 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 it's only going to be limited by the ability to identify relatives. So you've, you've got to be just like we, we identified or Anne-Marie's team identified the Golden State Killer. You need, you need to be able to use relatives to identify that person. So the longer, obviously, the longer you go, um, the less you know, probability you'll have for identifying someone if there's no relatives around, right? You need some, some degree of relatives to be able to identify them. So like, for example, in the Korean War right now, that's 75 years ago, they're at, <clears throat> they're at second cousin level. There, that's and but they have them, and so that's what they're doing. <clears throat> You've lost all of your first degree relatives by that stage, so STR profiling doesn't work. You have to go to SNP profiling, and that's where you need to. You can use more distant relatives to identify those remains, and so that's how that's how it works. I think a lot of people are somewhat familiar with this concept all of a sudden because of a crown episode this season. I don't know if you guys have seen this episode about the Romanoffs uh, murder. Uh, yeah. Is that, have you guys, is it, have either of you seen this? No, I haven't. Actually. Uh, no. Okay. Okay. Well, which, I encourage <laughs> you to check it out later. Um, uh, they, and this is uh, this is based on all true things that happened, but there's yeah. a terrible series of murders uh, at, at the outside of World War World War One. Yeah, World War I. Yeah, Russian Tsar's family, and then there's bad bad blood between the uh, the crown and Russia. And ultimately, uh, DNA technology was was used um, through blood testing of Prince Philip's. I take it to to see if if that was actually the the remains that they'd identified. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, yeah, they they kind of devoted a whole episode to it. So, hey, anything that brings science to a broader population, I'm I'm all for. Um, Okay, so. I think we've got a sense of the, the broader applications. Who, who are your customers typically? Who, who is it that says, I, I'm, I, I need this, I'm going to buy the product? So the actual purchasing is is undertaken by the forensic 
laboratory, right? So the DNA, the forensic DNA laboratory is our core customer who's going to buy our sequencing platform, the reagents. Our actual customer for the GEDmatch database is often the, the genealogist, right? Whether it be within law enforcement or if they've contracted out to a private genealogist, they're the folks that are going to be using um, you know, the, 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 the GEDmatch database. We also sell to the private labs, the private forensic labs, for example, Bodhi Labs or DLI or DNA Labs International out in Florida. Um, and to overseas, it's really to the same thing, very much government, academic. In, in Europe, for example, a lot of the forensic labs sit within universities. They call them Department of Legal Medicine. So for us, it's a variety, but mainly government, both state, local, and federal. Uh, okay. governments and private labs. Well, it's, a, it's a great segue to talk about how Anne-Marie started to find out about this technology. So, so Anne-Marie, what was your first exposure to this concept? I think it was fairly early in your career, actually, you started getting interested in this. Yeah, so I got my first DNA case in 1994. I was a young pros- younger prosecutor, I should say. Um, and it was in the days of the first kind of introduction of DNA. It, the world remembers O.J. Simpson was kind of the big case that kind of exposed this new tool called DNA. My my case involved a serial rapist, and that was you know in the early days of DNA. And so it's one of those things that I've learned that you know 25, 28 years ago that DNA is the greatest tool ever to find the truth, no matter where it leads us. And so over time, I've had the benefit of kind of evolving with the science, you know, as a prosecutor. And so then in, you know, as time went on and DNA became more and more advanced, we started solving more and more cold cases, but, you know, the cold case rate of solve is probably around 30% of cases or so. And then in the fall of 2017, you know, while people were working feverishly to try to solve the Golden State Killer, uh, a pretty smart investigator named Paul Holes came and asked me, hey, what do you think about this idea? And he pitched it and he kind of tried to explain this concept of what some people call genetic genealogy, we call forensic investigative genetic genealogy. And I remember sitting there when, you know, and I understood DNA fairly well, but when he presented this idea of this new tool, like Brett talks about these things called SNPs, my kind of, my eyes kind of glassed over and I'm like, oh my God, this is a whole new world. But I also knew that it was the greatest hope we could have to try to solve that case. And so, um, you know, our office and, and the team was willing to move forward with it. And I'm obviously quite grateful that they did. Let's give a little more context on the Golden State Killer. How long had the investigation and, and failed attempts at bringing charges been going on at the point that you got interested in this approach? This is where I think it gets fascinating when you look at the numbers, because, you know, we've, we've got now the data, like how long did it take to solve it? So the case went on for 43 years. It had a, about 600 plus investigators assigned to it over the years. There was 15 different law enforcement agencies involved in that investigation because of the magnitude of the case. Um, probably close to $10 million was spent to try to solve it. Hundreds of thousands of hours were put into solving it. 8,000 people were looked at as potential people of interest. 300 people had their DNA swabbed to, and were all eliminated. And that really ultimately produced nothing. 
And then comes along this new amazing tool called uh, FIG or investigative genetic genealogy. And it was a team of about six people. This is on the Golden State Killer. It cost a few hundred dollars at the time. And the case was solved in 63 days. So you go from 43 years of relentless pursuit of justice by incredible law enforcement to 63 days. It's, it's really powerful. Okay. So, so I, I want to try to give listeners as much as possible, sort of the sequence that no pun intended of exactly what you were doing during this really compressed period where you're, where you're solving the case. So so you, I take it at this point, you always knew you had DNA of the murderer. Is that correct? Yes. So back in the mid nineties, and just to remind the, the listeners, um, the Golden State Killer killed, as, as far as we know, 13 people. Uh, he pled guilty to that. He um, raped upwards of 50 different people uh, over those 43 years. There was direct victims of totaling of well over 80 victims of Golden State Killer. So the magnitude was enormous. So then when this idea was kind of hatched in the fall of 2017 and this little small team was formed, and and just to be fair, I wasn't part of that little team. I'm talking about the people that were actually doing the work, two people from the FBI, two people from the Sacramento DA's office, um, a genetic genealogist named Barbara Ray Ventner uh, and Paul Holes. And so, yes, we had DNA in the mid-90s. The cases were linked. And then over time, more and more cases were linked by DNA. And the Northern California rapes were linked to the Southern California murders in 2001. And that's when everybody kind of had, you know, 21 years ago, this kind of aha moment that, oh, my God, we have one of the worst serial killers and rapists of all time. So that's kind of where we were. We knew we had DNA. Fortunately, uh, there was more DNA to be able to do this type of testing. And if we hadn't had that extra sample that was collected in one of the murders, then perhaps we wouldn't be sitting here today talking about this great case. Okay, so so what happens as a practical matter then once you decide to, to use this technology? You, ha- you have the DNA, you now understand the potential for the technology. What's the next step? Well, I, mean, I, I can answer that or if Brett wants to. I mean, for, for the purposes of the Golden State Killer or any of the cases that you know have been solved since then, I mean, you have to get your sample. You have to have some biological fluid. You then send it out to a private lab at this point and hopefully soon some public labs. And they do this specialized kind of testing called SNP testing, which gives you incredible amounts of data. And then from there, uh, you're going to utilize a database such as GEDmatch to try to, if you're uploading it, then you're going to try to build your family trees and identify relatives of your bad guy, basically. Mike. Am I right on that, Brett? Hopefully, I didn't butcher uh, that too right much. On, that's, that's exactly right. It, the way to look at the way to, to think about SNPs or single nucleotide polymorphisms is we share ninety nine point seven percent of our DNA. That 03 percent is what differentiates us, and we use that to determine um, how much DNA you share with others. Uh, and that's the whole premise of genetic genealogy. And um, just to get into the details, but Anne-Marie's right. You then use that information to build a family tree and identify the bad guy. Anne-Marie, was uh, the, the murderer, was he a suspect already at this point? Golden State Killer? Oh, no. Yeah. He was, you know, that's, he was never on any list. I mean, I trust me when I say that for 40 plus years, law enforcement made every list known to man to try to identify this person. 
and he was never on this list. And that I think is what's somewhat fascinating. Now, post Golden State Killer, we've got probably close to 200 at least across the country. Many of the people that have been identified in cases across the country were never on lists. Some, you know, some were just living right amongst us and just, you know, they woke up one day, decided to kill and went back to a, you know, quote unquote, normal life. And that, that is to me, some, some of the fascinating kind of realities of what we're seeing with the power of this technology. I mean, I, I keep saying this and it's true. This is the perfect marriage, which will never get divorced of science and law enforcement. Just so uh, was he, was he in custody already at that point? What do you mean? Uh, was, was he in custody for other, for, oh, for no. other crimes at that point? Okay. He, he, no, he was, he was, I mean, as most folks know, he was sadly a police officer at, at points. Um, and he was ultimately fired as a police officer. And that, at least for me, while I was the DA, that was the aha moment is when they were building the family trees, when they realized he had been a former police officer and that he'd been busted for stealing dog repellent and a, a hammer. That was kind of the moment of, oh my God, we got something here. This is, this sounds like something real now. Yeah. So, so as a prosecutor, I'm, I'm curious, you, you have now this, this DNA and what, what does that do in terms of your ability to, to prosecute the case as a practical matter? Because it, it obviously is going to rely on, theoretically, if you get to a jury, explaining the technology in some way to a jury, right? So what was, what was no, your No, actually, no, not mm-hmm. to correct you, but I'm, I am going to well, a little bit correct you. Yeah. So I think it's important that folks understand this is an investigative tool, at least from my perspective. And I think most folks that understand this, it's no different than what we get when we call a CODIS hitch, which is a DNA hit to a data bank, a felon data bank. This is a lead for law enforcement. This is like a tip. And so as a prosecutor, we don't anticipate, we don't suggest that it even be brought into court. It's just simply giving law enforcement a tip. Then they're going to go get a sample, a direct sample from the person of interest. And then they're going to compare it with kind of the old school STR, traditional technology. And that is what goes into court. It's not the genealogy because that, you know, remember, we're dealing with, with um, somewhat of privacy issues. We're trying to maintain privacy in the work that we do and balance that public safety. So if it's not necessary to present in the courtroom, then we shouldn't be. Yeah, that's, that's, that, Brian, that, the way Anne-Marie is absolutely right. It, the whole process of genetic genealogy begins and ends with an STR profile. There's an STR profile from the crime scene. There's an STR profile from your suspect that's been identified by genealogy. And those that it's the STR profile that's compared and therefore presented in court because that's the accepted, you know, from a, you know, from a technology perspective, STR profiling is, is the key. Yeah, no, that's super helpful. I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad we focused on that. So you get enough from this to get a warrant to go get the sample in this case from the Golden State Killer. Right. And uh, well, you're and, and you said it's OK to get in the weeds, but yeah. um, we don't normally, you know, when you finally figure out somebody through a family tree and you think that person's perhaps your suspect, then typically law enforcement, they can get a warrant. Um, and, and that's possible. There's other ways that legal ways, such as abandoned DNA, when basically the dudes, you know, goes to the restaurant and leaves his cup behind and or he goes to, you know, a drive through and throws his trash out or whatever. But that's, 
in the case of the Golden State Killer, it, it's um, public knowledge that law enforcement followed him and got actually twice. They followed him once at, to a Hobby Lobby and got a sample from um, something that was, you know, lawfully obtained. And then secondly, they did what's called a trash run and they got his garbage and got his DNA from that. Fascinating. Okay. So that's, that's um, one of the most famous examples of using this for cold cases. Let's, let's do an exoneration example. The Ricky Davis case is, is something you've talked a lot about a lot sure. in Marie publicly. Can you tell us what happened in that case? Sure. So Ricky Davis was a, a guy that was prosecuted in an, a neighboring county in Northern California called El Dorado County. Um, in the mid 80s, there was a woman that was brutally stabbed to death named Jane Hilton. And the case went unsolved for a period of time. And then the investigators picked it up and they clued in, or they, I should say, they focused in on Ricky Davis because um, he was staying, I believe, at the home. Uh, he had some, his, some of his own issues. And ultimately, they had an informant, the girlfriend at the time of, of Ricky Davis, who claimed that those two committed the crimes. Ricky Davis always confessed his innocence, always for decades. He was ultimately convicted despite his profession of innocence. Um, and then after he was convicted, the Northern California Innocence Project came to our office, the Sacramento DA's office, I should say my former office, and um, asked us to do what's called post-conviction DNA work, meaning can you look at some of the evidence in the case? Can you see if Ricky Davis is on the evidence? And basically what had happened was the victim, Jane Hilton, had been bitten by one of the perpetrators. And there was um, a bite mark on her shoulder. And so our, our laboratory, SAC DA's lab, um, went meticulously and went through her pajamas and ultimately found DNA on the pajamas that aligned with the bite mark. Um, it was basically probably saliva from the bite mark. And that DNA was not Ricky Davis's. And that became a very big piece of evidence to give him a new trial. He got a new trial for that. But the question was, well, whose was it? Whose DNA was on that pajamas? Because it could have been, it could have been Ricky's buddy. It could have been completely somebody separately. So that's when I said to the DA in our office, you know, the DA's office, I said, well, we should be doing genetic genealogy on this because we need to figure out whose it is. Either Rich, Ricky Davis is actually innocent or Ricky Davis is still potentially guilty. And so through that genetic genealogy, they identified a different person um, by the name of Michael Green. And Michael Green was in fact the killer. And Michael Green actually just pled guilty um, to that case about a month or so ago, maybe two months ago now. But, but the important thing is um, it's a tool of justice. And for me, yes, as much as I am so proud of the work that was done on the Golden State Killer, I mean, it, it is the most incredible case. Ricky Davis's case is right up there because this man was actually innocent and spent 15 years in prison for a crime he did not commit. And so I look at this tool through the lens of, yeah, it's great for cold cases. Yeah, it's, it's great for you know, future cases, but we should be using this same tool if there's an actual claim of innocence. And that's what Ricky Davis demonstrated at the power of that tool. Amazing example. Okay. So, so Brad, I'd like to talk about the identifying human remains uses mm -hmm. that you're engaging in 
throughout the world. Give us a little bit of context, you know, with whatever you, you can uh, within confidentiality rules of the types of things you're, you're working on. Yeah, so it's a broad, Unidentified Human Remains covers a broad um, swath of the, the world. But so GEDmatch, back here in the US, it's routinely used to identify unidentified human remains that are, that are found, right, using GEDmatch using the database um, to ident- just just like you're identifying uh, perpetrators of crimes, you can also now identify, uh, take a sample from that unidentified human remains and then build trees and identify the person. The other, uh, when we, the other me- um, topic we talked about was these conflict zone resolution, resolving the unidentified human remains from conflict zones. There it's a little different. We're still using the platform SNPs but actually, because you have known references now, usually, you know, family members will come forward and go, hey, I, I'm missing a loved one. I want to give a DNA sample. So there we use the GEDmatch infrastructure and tools, but we're actually comparing the unidentified remains to directly a reference database. So it's a separate application, but it relies on the SNP profiling technology that we use for perpetrators or exonerations. But it's just a little different in that we're not comparing those profiles to the to the main GEDmatch database. These are specific um, uh, databases generated for each of those conflict zones because they have known references. So, so who is your customer typically for that type of work? So for the for that, it's the governments of a particular country. So, for example, in Korea, uh, you there's the Korean government is working specifically. Spain just changed their laws to be able to exhume the the uh, Spanish Civil War remains. So these are government level, high level activities at the government that the the government then funds particular labs in that country to do the work. Um, Mexico, similar story as well. In Mexico, it's horrific. They've lost more people now than the Afghanistan uh, than anybody in the compared to like for example in the Afghanistan war they've lost more people than the Afghans had during that period of time they have over 100,000 people reported missing they have about 40,000 bodies in crypts they know they've got about another 60 they haven't dug up so there, there's this huge it, it is an epidemic and it's a silent one it's outside of it's not really talked about but for us, this is an area where we think the technology can be used to bring closure for all of these families with, with missing uh, loved ones. And is the U.S. government currently a client in, in this regard? Um, so they are funding certain, um, certain activities. For example, the U.S. State Department funded uh, the Columbia uh, government to uh, particularly the FARC insurrection down there. Um, there's a number of missing uh, unidentified human remains and that is State Department funded and we supply the technology for that. So, yes, the, the government usually does that. Um, the, the State Department is funds in certain instances, uh, the other governments. So we've talked about cold cases. We've talked about exoneration. We've talked about some of the unidentified human remains instances. But this, my understanding, this is also being used for active prosecutions, right? Right. So, so yeah, Brett, how how, are, how do you use the tools in that context? It's it's very similar to um, what Anne Marie described. In fact, it's dead the same as what Anne Marie described for the Golden State Killers, because the first case that was solved using the technology was a cold case. 
It's not, and I think that's the point what we've hopefully got out of this podcast is it's not a cold case technology only. It can be used for exonerations or unidentified human remains, but also for active cases, particularly where you get a no hit on the CODIS database. You know, reflexing to FIG for violent crime, it should be part of the standard operating procedure in our mind. Yeah, and, and let's let's talk a little bit more about how how uh, the government and crime labs can make that more of the standard operating procedure. T- tell me how law enforcement um, is able to access it in that case as a practical matter currently in California. So they so let's assume hypothetically they send it to their own crime lab, public laboratory. They get the DNA extracted, meaning that they, they take whatever the crime scene sample is. They get the DNA out of it. And then they send it off. I assume they did a a traditional type of what Brett's calling STR testing. And then they're going to send it to a private lab, probably Bodhi. And then they get what's called the SNP testing done. And then from there, it's just like the GSK or any of these other cases. It goes in through the tree building process. And then they figure out from there. So it's it's exactly the same. Um, The one thing I would say, and maybe this kind of gets a little bit you know, somewhat of me on my platform is, you know, if we have, let's say we have a a rape that happens today, a forcible rape of a child. Okay. Mm -hmm. And we in law enforcement have that child or that victim go through a sexual assault examination. It's probably one of the most invasive, personally intrusive types of things Mm -hmm. we can expect somebody to go through. And that's because we have to collect the evidence. Law enforcement has to collect it. So my view is, listen, you know, that rape happened today and they've developed a DNA profile, but they can't match it to anybody in the felon database. We owe it to society and we owe it to that child and to that family and to our communities. We owe it to take that next step. We have the tools. It's here. It's right in front of us. We should avail ourselves every single time of that tool if we're not able to solve it through traditional means. Right. And what's holding us back from doing that at bigger scale? Let's start with California, and then I'll ask you the same question nationally. But but as a practical matter in California, what's holding us back from doing that in every case? Um, that you I think it's two-part, and I'll let Brett chime in, but I mean, maybe more than two parts. I think the first one is raising awareness mm-hmm. across the country, across the state. Um, you know, the Golden State Killer happened, you know, was solved over four and a half years ago. And in many ways, we've come a very long way. But in in other ways, we still have a ways to go because we have to get ourselves to the point where it is the norm. And so people understanding it is part of that. And then the the second part is that it needs to be part of everybody's budget, just period. It just needs to be, if we think about the power of this tool, and and I go back to that San Bernardino case and and recognizing that case is still pending. So I'm respectful of that. But if we have the ability to do this in active cases, we have the ability to eliminate the word serial from serial rapes, serial murders. And I, you know, other folks have, have said that, that it is, it's true. So we're not only identifying the guilty and exonerating the innocent, we're preventing future crime. And that's what we need to be in the business of on every single case moving forward. And Brian, I would agree wholeheartedly with Emery. It is about awareness. It is about budget. And it's about priority. Because in these labs, for example, COVID caused a, a huge backlog within these labs. They shut down over COVID and they're digging out of that. And it's about the prior, getting the priority 
of the lab to do the validation and the implementation um, within the quality standards that they operate within. So it it is a number of things, um, you know, that that sort of are slowing, you know, the adoption. This this really the technology is available. It's proven, and and it really is a matter of awareness, funding, and priority prioritization within the within the law enforcement community. And in terms of funding, I mean, you know, some of the examples you're talking about a yeah, cases pending for 43 years, you know, clearly the money that's spent is, is giving you, you know, returns by orders of magnitude with modest amounts of funding versus what it's costing to both have the crime itself, but also these, you know, right. multi-decade prosecutions, right? I mean, how, how do you think, how do you think about the real costs when, when you make this pitch to folks? If you think about the cost of doing, um, you know, the SNP work, doing the genealogy, identifying your potential suspect, you're talking less than less than seven and a half, maybe $10,000, depending on what technology you use somewhere around there. It could be a little bit more, but you're talking about a $10,000 cost, which is going to give you leads to solve a case. If you compare that to a cold case that you have no known leads anymore, you've exhausted all of your probative leads, then suddenly, you know, that versus the, you know, the recidivism cost of not doing anything here, it doesn't seem like a large outlay in my mind uh, from that side of it. I think it's also, I think it's important that, and again, it kind of goes back to my little soapboxes. We have, we're dealing with human tragedy. We're dealing with mm-hmm. the human toll of crime. And there is, there is a cost to that, not just the emotional cost, financial right. cost. I mean, I think about the Golden State Killer and the 83 victims, direct victims that he had. And when I sat in the courtroom and listened to to their families tell the judge the impact, I mean, people changed their lives. They changed how they raised their children. They changed the jobs they chose to have as a profession. They changed how they protected themselves in their homes. And so when we talk about this tool, and yes, maybe it costs 7500 or 10000 okay, but the human toll of crime, that cost is, is mm-hmm. immeasurable. That's a, that's, a, that's a cost we can never measure because it's so, um, it's so long-term. And so I think this, to me, is the return on investment is not just about solving that crime, but it's about really um, the future. And, and for I, all of us, and a statistic for you: I think in 2016, the estimated cost of recidivism it was about 296 billion in the U.S. alone. That's what Emery's talking about. There is all of these ancillary costs associated with crime that people don't look at. It's it's real, and and the cost to you know this new technology. Yes, it's more expensive, but it's also been proven that it works. Um, you know, when you look at the U.S. alone, the the, pro- the problem with CODIS is it's STR-based and therefore, the, depending on the case and, and the locality in the country, the probability of getting a hit when you upload to CODIS is, is roughly about 40% on average. And that's if you leave it there for a while, the, the, the profile. And so that means 60% of the time you're getting a no hit. And, and when you think about that and, and you think about the number of cold cases, there's an estimated number of about, we think about 100,000 
cold case homicides in the US with DNA. There's more more cold case homicides than that, but the the number with DNA is around 100,000. You have nearly 650,000 sexual assault kits with DNA that um, you know that that uh, are cold cases at this point, and it's increasing right every year. It's increasing at about 100,000 per year. And this is where you know either you accept that as a society, or you 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 determine that it's worth spending these dollars to actually drive down that cost of crime, right? If it's costing us about what two hundred ninety six billion back in twenty sixteen, it's going to cost you more today. It makes sense to be you know thinking about your prioritization of where you want to spend you know the your your dollars here. And in in terms of those funding streams, I mean the, the U.S. federal system is is um, not not totally unique, but it's it's a little more um, uh, pointed than some other countries. So how how do you all think about the the way this really should be funded? Is this something the federal government needs to step up more? Should this be left to the states and municipalities? Does it need to be a combination? Um, how, what do you think the right mix is here? Oh, I, I think it should be a combination. I, the federal government is, through the NIJ, is the biggest funder of forensics in, in the US. And it's actually the US is very unique globally in that it's a centralized funding um, body for all of the justice system out there versus in Europe, it's very piecemeal, for example. There's no centralized funding in the EU and so the government, though, needs to re- readjust their grant mechanisms to allow funding for this. You know, a, a year or so ago, it was we, we, you you weren't allowed to actually put in a grant for, like, for example, a SIVA grant. You weren't allowed to put in that you wanted to use it for, you know, forensic investigative genetic genealogy. We had a number of customers that had their grants declined. That's an example of where the the government funding bodies needs to you know be abreast of the technology, being a driver for this. That will actually drive adoption, particularly takes care of the budget. We talked about awareness, and we're working on that with Anne Marie. But there's the budgeting side, which is very government that central federal government focused, uh, where a lot of that money comes from. That can be a, a, a huge source of driving both the awareness and also then the the the, the, the sort of the, the jurisdictions to adopt the technology, particularly these public labs, because there's no reason why it should be outsourced. They should be doing this in house. And what public labs do we have in California? Oh, there's quite a number of public labs. I think there's at least ten. Uh, 10 public DNA labs, I believe. Is that right? Yeah, there's a lot. I mean, there's California Department of Justice has, I think they have 13 labs, but, but, but uh, then there's like Sacramento County DA's office has its Mm -hmm. own lab. There's several law enforcement labs, LA, LAPD, LASO. So there's a lot of public labs, Kern County, which may well be one of the first, if I can say that and not get, um, chopped and you know cut out and <laughs> edited from, out but Northern california but, so that might be a problem <laughs> so um i just think it's uh, you know i think the other thing to kind of you know emphasize this i've been to a lot of conferences in the last six months to a year on genealogy this is the hottest topic it's not just conferences on genealogy it's it's forensic science conferences i you know i had the fortune of going to internationally to talk about the killer this is it. This is, you can tell it's finally hit 
people that this is it. This is the new tool. And now we all have to get on board and do the work that needs to do to bring it in-house and make it the standard. Yeah. I, I would agree. I think the awareness, we've, we've reached, you know, that sort of critical point on the awareness side. It's becoming, you know, as Emory says, it is very much the key focus in a lot of these forensic meetings right now. And, and really what it is now is about budget and prioritization is getting the budget and getting it prioritized in there uh, to implement it in their lab. And for people who are listening who are not in the law enforcement community uh, or maybe don't work for government in terms of ability to impact funding, um, but I take it as something really important everybody can do regardless of, regardless of where you sit in this space, right? And, and that's, that's opting into these databases. So how does that work and where can, where can people do that if they, if they want to do that opt-in? Yeah, the interesting thing about genetic genealogy, and this is what its real power is, you know, with, with STR profiling, it's usually one-to-one, maybe one-to-two. In other words, one profile, you can, be, you can identify a profile uh, from one or two people, for example, you know, if you've got a first-degree relative. But um, with genetic genealogy, its, it's, it's power is it's a one-to-30, one-to-40. In other words, you can, from one unknown profile, you, you will have relatives of 30 or 40 different people potentially in the database. And the sort of standing maths, the way it works, is if you have about 1% of the population in the database, you can actually identify 90% of the population uh, to third cousin or closer or 60% of the population second cousin or closer. The thing is, in the US, we've got about 350 million people-ish. So about 35, you know, you, you want about three and a half million people in the database. Today, about 40 million people have taken this test at, uh, a, you know, a, a genealogy test, whether it be at Ancestry, 23andMe or MyHeritage or the like. So we need, we need about 10% of them actually uploading those profiles to either GEDmatch or FDDNA and opting in to allow law enforcement to, you know, match against that profile to help, you know, identify these perpetrators or unidentified human remains. And so that's really what it is that we actually have the number of people in the US today who've taken the test to make this, you know, to solve virtually all of these cases that we have. We need them to upload them and then we need them to opt in because we, we don't want people, we don't force people to allow their profile to be used for law enforcement. It's really interesting uh, we see about 75% of the people who are new to GEDmatch, for example, will opt in to allow law enforcement to match against their profile. It's um, We see a large number of the people have that sort of civic-mindedness to them, uh, and they, they have no problem allowing that for uh, law enforcement use. So what's the website where people can go to do that? Uh, so GEDmatch.com. So it's uh, you can sign up. You can you, you'll have to download your profile from wherever you took your test. Twenty three Me Ancestry. We have instru- instructions on the website. It's uploaded. You select your privacy settings, and and there you don't have to do anything else at that point. Uh, and I say this to both of you. What what didn't I ask you that you should have? I mean, I could keep you for another hour, but I want to I want to be respectful of both your times because clearly you're, you're working on such a, <laughs> important things here. But but what yeah, what didn't we cover that we should have? 
I think the only thing for me is, listen, we are in, I like to believe the greatest revolution in forensic science. Um, most labs in this country and, and internationally are still using basically, as my friends would say, an, a 30-year-old car. And we need, to, we need to drive the newest car that we can to solve these problems. And so for me, you know, being part of this, this effort is so rewarding because ultimately it's not just about crime solving and exonerations. It's about crime prevention. No, I think you're absolutely right, Emery. It's it's the yeah the the standard technology in in forensic labs today is from actually when Emery said 1994. <laughs> it's still the same, but the the world has moved on. We make life and death decisions in diagnostics based on next gen sequencing, and yes. you know it's time for us to start making those and using the technology for the appropriate decisions in the law enforcement side as well. Well, you know, it's it's such an important topic. I was having a conversation with a policymaker in Sacramento recently, and and they were sort of saying, you know, what's what's next in tech? What's what's really happening? Because it feels like all we're doing right now is you know making cameras better on our phones, and like what's you know what's what's actually changing? And and and, and to me, it's it's this um, and and biotech and health, and we you know we've had just enormous advances during COVID. One of the very few upsides of of COVID is is the, the things that have gone on with gene editing and CRISPR and all these technologies. Uh, and so, yeah, this this whole space is something we want to keep talking about on the show and help keep answering that question of, you know, what's what's the next stage of tech? Where are we headed? And I can't think of a um, more important application for society here. So, so thanks, first of all, for what you're working on. Um, thanks for being on the show today. If people want to find out more about the company generally, Brett, where should they go? Uh, you can go to verigen.com. That's B-E-R-O-G-E-N.com. We can that'll explain about the company. It also has links there to Jedmatch. Uh, Jedmatch is the other part of Verigen, uh, which is both for you know the, the law enforcement and the consumer side as well. And Amory, now that you are out of office, where can people find you online? <laughs> I have my own company called Schubert Strategies. So uh, stay tuned. The website will be up, I'm sure, soon. But uh, Or you can find me, just probably Google. Well, Brett and, and Amory, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks for what you're working on. This is such a hugely important topic, and we, we hope to have you back on to keep talking about this issue as we move forward. Appreciate thank it, you. Thank Thanks you. for having us. Um, for the listeners out there, um, I hope you keep listening to these podcasts. You can find us on InsideCrimeFiles.com and listen to more about the true consequences of crime and the innovation and inspiration that comes out of these cases. So I just thank you all. Olas Media presents Inside the Crime Files. media.